So as Ben said, today's reading is uh, Mark chapter 1, which is pages uh, 1002 and 1003 in your uh, pew Bibles. Starting at verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in, in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt round his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue, who was possessed by an impure spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, 
but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began talking freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Good evening. Uh, the story is told of a uh, papal visit late in the last century to uh, the small island nation of Britain, uh, and uh, particularly uh, an incident um, that happened to the Pope when he was in England. Uh, he was uh, running late uh, on his way to Lambeth Palace to uh, see the Archbishop of Canterbury, and in his chauffeur-driven uh, limousine as he was going along the motorway, uh, he was sort of nervously looking at his watch uh, and occasionally tapping on the uh, dividing partition uh, and saying to the driver, my son, is there no way we could go a little faster? After this had happened a few times, uh, the driver said to him, uh, listen, your holiness, if that's what I call you, um, I really can't afford to lose my license. This is my livelihood. If I drive any faster, we'll get stopped by the police. Uh, and um, I can't, if I have any more points on my license, that's it. I lose everything. And the Pope nodded sagely, said, I understand. You get in the back, I'll drive. So the Pope has now got his foot to the floor uh, and he's beginning to, to sort of touch a ton when the inevitable blue lights uh, start to spin uh, and uh, the police car sort of ushers him onto uh, the hard shoulder. The Pope uh, parks the, the limousine uh, puts on his most innocent, beatific face, tries to look as papal as he can, and winds down the window as one of the two police officers in the car uh, approaches. Ready with his uh, favourite Damon Hill gag, because that was the uh, era, uh, the uh, policeman says, oh, who do we think we are, sir? Then looks in and sees the Pope, and he goes white as a sheet, staggers back to the police car and says, we're in real trouble. Uh, and his colleague says, well, why is that? He says, well, you're not going to believe who we've pulled over. And he says, oh, it's not Gordon Brown again. <laughs> says, no, no, it's a lot worse than that. Tony Blair. <laughs> no, no, I think it's a lot worse than that. You've just pulled the Queen over for speeding. He says, no, I think it's a lot worse than that. He says, well, how can that be? Who is it? He says, well, I've got no idea, but he's got the Pope driving his car. 
Now, I told you that, yeah, because I love it. But also, because um, that is kind of how Mark's gospel begins. We're told this is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus, but then we're straight into finding out about the support act, about John the Baptist, the one prophesied in uh, Isaiah, I will send my messenger ahead of you. Uh, And so verse four, please do follow it with me as we go through the passage. Uh, And so in verse four, John the Baptist appears in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he is like this man, he's like a rock star. People are coming from the whole of the surrounding area to hear him and be baptized by him. Uh, And it cuts across the normal kind of city-country divide. I don't know if you noticed that. But the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem. He's not just of interest to the country bumpkins, nor is he just of interest to the metropolitan elite. Everyone is fascinated and captivated by John. And they come and they confess their sins and they're baptized by him in the Jordan River. And that doesn't seem like much because we don't really, most of us perhaps, immediately understand what baptism would have signified for a Jew in the first century. There was only one kind of person who, became, who got baptized in those days, and it was a Gentile, someone who was not Jewish, someone who was unclean outside the people of God. Uh, and baptism was the way you became a proselyte. That is the way that you came from being a Gentile to having some kind of share in the promises of the nation of Israel. It was the way that a non-Jew becomes a Jew. And John comes and he says, you all need to be baptized. You all need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. It's not enough to have the right parents. It's not enough to go to the right synagogue. It's not enough to rest on your identity as part of the people, you personally need to be forgiven by God. And the change that's needed in your life is like the change between being a Gentile and a Jew. And they all come to him and they're all baptized. It's absolutely astonishing. And then Mark tells us what John is wearing. Why does he do that? He, he says, John wore a, a clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. John is dressed like Elijah, perhaps the greatest prophet of the ancient kingdom of Israel. There hasn't been a prophet to God's people for 400 years. But now people recognize that John is just such a person. He's a prophet. He is one who comes and brings the living word of God to his people. What does this prophet have to say for himself? Let's look, verse seven. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, just to, to, to get that metaphor straight, uh, think about what life is like in ancient Jerusalem. I mean, I know at the moment there is a lot of concern uh, in London, particularly about vehicle emissions, right? Sorry, this is two weeks in a row I've mentioned it, but it's in the news. Particulate emissions from vehicles are a great concern in 21st century London. Well, the sort of particles that were emitted from the vehicles used uh, in ancient Israel uh, were much more tangible, and you were much more likely to tread in them. 
And so no one wanted anything to do with anyone else's feet. Okay, the very lowest slave would balk if you said, would you please help me to remove my shoes? Would you help me with washing my feet? That was the job for the lowest of the lowest. So disgusting. I know what you've been walking in. And yet John says, I'm not worthy to do that for the one who is coming after me. Mark wants you to be thinking, who could it be in the back of the car if the Pope is driving? He wants you to be thinking, what band is about to come on stage if Taylor Swift is the opening act? That's the part John plays here. He's a prophet come to a a nation that hasn't had a prophet in 400 years, and he says, I'm nothing. The one who is coming after me is so great, I'm not even worthy to touch his feet. Here's the comparison John makes. He says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, because this is our kind of introduction to Mark, let me just tell you a couple of things about the way Mark's gospel works. Uh, Mark is one for the machine gun delivery. Everything happens immediately and everything happens fast uh, and everything happens all at once. Uh, And um, it's a kind of very staccato, kind of fast cut, fast paced kind of modern movie style uh, that he uses. And it's a bit bewildering at times and it's a bit confusing. And quite often, Mark rather enjoys making you scratch your head and think, hang on, that's not what I expected to come next. So John says, I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What's the next thing that happens? Jesus comes and he is baptized. Now, we know that Jesus is the main man. We know that Jesus is the focus of the story because Mark's told us about that in verse 1, and we'll come back to verse 1 in a moment. But it's a head-scratcher, isn't it? Jesus, this one who John's not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandal, Jesus comes to him and says, will you baptize me? And then in that moment of baptism, perhaps we begin to get a hint of what baptism with the Holy Spirit means when John talks about it. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit because as Jesus is baptized, he's baptized with the Holy Spirit in that as he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him with a voice from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, we'll come back to the significance, one of the significances of that uh, later on. But for now, notice this. How does Mark introduce his gospel? Chapter 1, verse 1. The big title he gives Jesus is the Son of God. And right at the beginning, there is testimony to Jesus being the Son of God. Uh, And it's the best testimony you could expect. It's God himself who testifies and says, you are my son. God the Father speaks from heaven. God the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. You are my son with whom I am well pleased. No one in John's gospel, John's gospel, well, let's talk about John's gospel another time. Uh, No one in Mark's gospel calls Jesus the son of God again until his crucifixion. And the person who does is a Roman centurion. 
gospel begins with God testifying that Jesus is the Son of God and ends with a Roman centurion testifying that Jesus is the Son of God. Why is that significant? Let's go to chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. The, the first word uh, that Mark uses is the same as the first word of the Bible, the beginning. And, and it's very deliberate. Jesus' coming is a new start. It is the beginning. It's like the creation. It's that significant. It's like the beginning of reality. It's like God speaking the world, the heavens and the earth into existence. It's that huge. It is that important. Uh, and uh, so when Mark says the beginning of the good news about Jesus, it's not that he sat at his typewriter and thought, how do you start a gospel? There aren't many of them around. How do I start one? Oh, maybe I'll just say, this is the beginning. That's not what's happening. He's pointing to just how enormous this is. This is like the beginning of reality. But then the next word he uses is good news. In Greek, it's just one word, euangelion, which we translate as gospel. So when we talk about Mark's gospel, it is the good news according to Mark, the euangelion of Mark. Now, the reason I tell you that is because that word euangelion had a very particular meaning in that time and in those days. That the, the idea of a gospel was a sort of official proclamation of joy and of good news. Uh, and one of the most significant uses of it we find uh, at uh, the, um, they discovered at a site in a place called Prien, which is in, on the sort of uh, west coast of Turkey, just between Ephesus and Miletus. They found what is known by scholars as the calendar inscription. So the people of Prien decided that they were going to re reshape their entire calendar that their year and indeed their recording of time would begin with the birthday of Caesar Augustus, who is the Caesar who took over from Julius Caesar, his adopted son. Uh, and here is one of the things uh, that it says on that inscription. One of the reasons, or the heart, the main reason, that they said, we're going to change our calendar and begin it with the birthday of Augustus. This is what they said. The birthday of the god Augustus marked for the world the beginning of good tidings. That is the beginning of euangelion, the beginning of the gospel through his coming. Now Augustus was based on both an organizational and a military genius. And he brought peace to the war-torn Roman world. He brought security and safety at what people call the Pax Romana, this, this sort of safe world to live in and to trade and to, uh, and to raise your children. Uh, and so the coming of Augustus is seen as supremely good news. And Augustus himself is seen as a sort of divine figure. Uh, and so they say this is, uh, and with imperial proclamations and particularly with the appointments of new emperors or great uh, sort of uh, imperial triumphs by emperors, they would, they would have these proclamations which were euangelion, which were gospels. The gospel of Augustus. And here comes Jesus. And Mark says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. And so it perhaps 
begins to twig in your mind that the fact that it's a Roman soldier that recognizes that Jesus is the son of God, that's not insignificant. Jesus is far greater than Augustus and his kingdom is far bigger and far more wonderful and the peace that he brings is more real and is deeper and longer lasting and more radical than anything the greatest emperor could do. So that title, the son of God, in one sense is a challenge to those who look to the emperor as a son of the gods, as, as, as one about whom you proclaim good news. Mark says, I'm going to proclaim to you news so good that you can't imagine it, that you will never make sense of it, that it's beyond anything you could hope for. And what John has to say about baptism has got something to do with that, but we'll come back to it. So next surprise uh, for uh, us as we look at what's happening in the life of Jesus at sort of breakneck speed in Mark's gospel. There's a reason that Mark's gospel is the shortest of the gospels because he gets everything over so quickly. At once, notice, at once, immediately, the Spirit sends Jesus out into the wilderness. So here's this king who's come uh, and Messiah just means uh, anointed king. It was a promise in the Old Testament that God would send his Messiah, his anointed king, to bring peace to his people. Well, here is this anointed king. Here is one who has just been declared by God to be the son of God. One greater than Augustus, one so great that John can't even touch his feet. And he's sent out into the middle of nowhere. And the spirit leads him out to do battle with Satan. There he is in the wilderness, 40 days. That's uh, significant. For those of you who've been coming in the mornings and looking at the book of Exodus, uh, the, the, the people of Israel are in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. They're being tested. Jesus is being tempted. And there he is with the wild animals, with the angels attending him, doing battle with the forces of evil. The first voice Jesus hears in Mark's gospel is the voice of God. The second is the voice of Satan. And what is that temptation? Uh, well, in Mark, it, it's kind of subtle, but you see it because it's all about the wild animals. At his crucifixion, just as he's about to die, Jesus quotes Psalm 22 when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the first line of Psalm 22. But Jesus is expecting us to read the whole psalm and to see that it, it reflects his experience of crucifixion. Uh, and verses 12 and 13 of Psalm 22 say this, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. It describes the experience of crucifixion, but crucifixion surrounded by a hostile, snapping, baying crowd. Jesus is there with the wild animals. That's where his journey begins. And that, until his resurrection, is where his journey ends. Surrounded by savage beasts. And those of you who've been with us looking at the book of Daniel will remember that the sort of ungodly powers, the sort of evil kingdoms of the world are represented as beasts. And Mark kind of lifts the curtain for us to see this sort of spiritual dimension to Jesus' experience. 
He's with the wild animals. He's being tempted by Satan. The angels are with him. There's this much bigger view of reality than most of us inhabit. This spiritual realm that stands behind the realm of touch and taste and smell that we experience and sight. And then immediately Mark switches tack again. Jesus is out in the desert being tempted and then the next thing we see, John is being put in prison. And immediately John is put in prison. Jesus goes and proclaims the good news of God. So now Jesus is the one proclaiming the gospel. And what does he say? Verse 15. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now what I propose is that Mark 1.1 and Mark 1.15 set the landscape for the whole of this gospel, for the whole of what Mark wants us to see. This is a proclamation about a king who has come and about his kingdom. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And in response to that kingdom, there is a call to each and every person who hears that proclamation. Repent and believe that gospel. Those are the two things Mark is interested in all the way through. Who is Jesus and what do we do in response? Who is the king? How do you live in the kingdom? Uh, and the verses that come uh, immediately after this uh, show us that in action we'll have to scoot through them because we just don't have a, a lot of time. But the gospel is centered around those two titles of Jesus. So in chapter 8, Jesus is recognized for the first time as the Messiah, the coming king. But Peter, the one Jesus' close friend who says that to him, cannot recognize what kind of king he is. And it is not until Jesus dies that he is recognized as the son of God. And those shadows are all the way through chapter one, aren't they? Jesus is there in the desert surrounded by the wild animals. He, he only comes onto the stage when John is sort of hoiked off like someone at a talent show who's not doing terribly well. Off he goes into prison. Jesus, the next act, comes on. But it's striking, isn't it? The one who came to proclaim Jesus in the first place finds himself on the wrong end of the law, finds himself in a dungeon. And John's execution is a key way marker in the book as we go through. There's this long shadow. Jesus is coming and bringing a kingdom, but it is not an unopposed kingdom. Just as Augustus had to subdue the rebels and subdue the, the tribes on the outside of the Roman Empire, so Jesus has a battle. But his battle is not like Augustus's battle. It is bigger, it is much more fundamental, and much more radical. So Jesus calls disciples to follow him. It's wonderful that we've got a boat here tonight, isn't it, to hear about Jesus' call of the fishermen. At Simon and Andrew, first of all, there they are, casting their net into the lake because they're fishermen. 
And Jesus says, come and follow me. I'll send you out to fish for people. And at once they leave their nets and follow him. Uh, And then when he's gone a a little bit further, he sees James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. And he calls them. Without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired men and followed him. So Jesus says, follow me, and they follow Remember, Mark's got two interests. Who is Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to repent and believe the gospel? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Well, straight away, we get an insight into that, don't we? You follow him, you go with him. There's a leaving involved. These men leave their identities. They leave their livelihoods. They leave their families to find a new identity in Jesus, Discipleship is no side add-on to your life. It's a whole new identity. That's what Jesus is calling people to. That's how big he is. That's how significant his coming is. That's how deep this gospel goes. So here we've got our boat. Imagine the men who made their living from that boat, just turning their backs on it and walking away to follow Jesus. That's the picture. Discipleship is radical as far as Mark is concerned. It is leaving everything behind to follow Jesus one way or another. And so now when we come to verse 21, we've got this little kind of little crowd of people, Jesus and these new disciples that he's called, and they go to this town Capernaum in Galilee. And this is Jesus' sort of first public act. He goes into the synagogue and he begins to teach and the people can't believe it. His teaching is like nothing they've ever heard. It has this authority. Not like people who are saying, well, look, like me, who say, well, look, look at verse 21. This is what it says. Jesus is teaching as the one who has the authority uh, to, to speak God's word for himself. He's not like the teachers of the law. This is something totally new. And as Jesus is teaching, someone in the crowd, someone in the synagogue congregation begins to cry out. He's possessed by an evil spirit. And the spirit kind of speaks through him and says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So he said that, you know, Jesus' kingdom involves confrontation, involves conflict, but it is cosmic conflict. It is spiritual conflict. Jesus has come to to overthrow the spiritual powers that oppress the sinful human race. Not for him the minor thing of capturing a nation or two, of building an empire. He has come to destroy the real axis of evil. He has come to break the power of Satan over lost human beings. So this demon recognizes him and cries out. And Jesus says, silence. Come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out with a shriek. We say there's conflict, but it doesn't really feel like conflict, does it? Jesus just says it and it happens. And that happens time and again through Mark's gospel. 
The evil spirits that oppress humanity are, have no power compared to the power of Jesus. And so the people recognize he has incredible authority, authority to teach and authority even to command the spirits. And so news spreads about him like wildfire. Here's Mark's next uh, big irony. Jesus spends the rest of the chapter trying to stop people talking about him. The chapter begins, this is the proclamation of the good news about Jesus. uh, And Jesus spends the chapter trying to say, please don't talk about me. He says to the evil spirits, silence, you may not speak about me, Uh, you may not testify to me, Uh, and it ends with this uh, leper that he's healed, and he says, don't tell anyone. So that's the the little bit that you get from verse 40 to verse 45. A man with leprosy comes to him. Now, there's lots more we could talk about in these... uh, Incidents with Jesus at the synagogue and then uh, with uh, Peter's uh, mother-in-law and then this man with leprosy. But suffice it to say that there isn't a problem that Jesus encounters that he can't fix. And pretty quickly, everyone realizes that. And all the sick and all the oppressed and all those who are possessed by demons uh, are brought to him. And Jesus keeps having to withdraw. So uh, he's healed um, uh, Peter's uh, mother-in-law or uh, Simon, as he's called at this point, uh, and um, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. She just gets up and starts waiting on them. It's not a, a gradual recovery. She is 100% from the moment that Jesus touches her uh, and helps her up. Uh, but then that evening after sunset, the people bring to Jesus all the sick and the demon-possessed, and he spends time healing and, and casting out evil spirits. But then very early in the morning, verse 35, he gets up and goes off to a solitary place so that he can be on his own, so that he can pray, And eventually they find him and say, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus says, well, that's why we need to go. Let's go to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That's why I've come. So he travels throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons. So Jesus has come to proclaim this gospel and he is going to proclaim it. And he's not going to be sidelined by the important but not ultimate needs of the people around. He has come to bring salvation to the whole human race. He's come to declare this kingdom that he is bringing this new freedom, this new joy, this new forgiveness, this new cleansing, uh, and he will preach. He's not come to be a healer, though he can heal, and though when he's confronted with sickness, he invariably does heal. He actually takes himself out of the situations in which he could be doing this great healing ministry, as important as it is, so that he can fulfill an even higher priority. He says, I've, gone, I've come so that I can preach. But what's striking is that Mark says about every time he goes to the synagogues, it's not just that he preaches, but he drives out the demons. Jesus is involved in this cosmic spiritual battle, which he is going to win but which Mark has already been hinting he is going to win in an act of apparent defeat in his death on the cross. That, I think, is why he continually says, don't tell anyone about this. Don't tell anyone about me. They're going to get the wrong idea. They're going to think that he's a king like Augustus. He's not anything like Augustus. They're going to think that he's a great healer. Well, yes, but that's not why he's come. He has come to do something much greater than just healing the body 
And that's what brings us back uh, to John's baptism. John says, I baptize you with water. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Baptism is something that is done that is external, that symbolizes cleansing and forgiveness of sin. But Jesus is going to change you from the inside out. That's what John says. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, And he's echoing a a promise that God made uh, to his people in Ezekiel chapter 36, where God says to them, I'll sprinkle clean water on you. You'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. John could offer a baptism of repentance. He could offer a cleansing, but it didn't solve the problem. Each person who came to him was still subject to the power of evil, still had sin in their heart and was unable to live for God. And John says, but when Jesus comes, he is the one who will give the Holy Spirit, who will begin to work on you from the inside out, who will make you into a new creation. Who will deliver you not only from the consequences of sin by giving you forgiveness, but from the very power of sin. It's so radical. It is so huge. And it gets even bigger because pointing to what that baptism with the Spirit means, in verse 11, Mark describes Jesus' experience of being baptized and receiving the Holy Spirit. And with the Spirit comes this declaration, you are my son. And woven through Mark's gospel, there is this motif. Why on earth would Jesus be baptized? Why would Jesus be baptized? He doesn't need to be cleansed of his sin. He has none. He is the perfect, spotless son of God. But time and again, Mark will point us to the fact that Jesus has come and taken what is ours so that we can have what is his. So he enters into baptism, that sign of a need of cleansing from sin. He somehow is going to take our place as sinful people. And in exchange... And it is genuinely hard to stress quite how extraordinary this would have been for the first people to read this. In exchange, we're not just made forgiven people. We are treated like Jesus, the beloved son in whom God is well pleased. Not prisoners out on release, but dearly loved children welcomed home into the bosom of God's family. Jesus came to take what was ours so that we might have what is his. That is what the kingdom of God looks like. And that is why Mark calls for and points to such radical discipleship. This really is the beginning As he begins his gospel, he says it's a new beginning. Coming to Jesus is a new beginning. It is about new creation. It turns everything upside down. I'm looking forward to reading the rest of it, aren't you?